you know, it's funny because I, I, I was telling my wife just last night, you know, I, I have disagreements with adults all the time and we always work it out. In fact, there's one an associate that I work with. We have a disagreement once a week, you know, we always, <laughs> but we always work it through and figure it out and, and see eye to eye. And it's like, why is this so much harder with teenagers? I just, I mean, obviously I'm talking about one particular teenager, but you get my point. <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. And you know, yeah. I feel like it's, I'm not a clinician myself, but I've done clinical interviews. So it is, it's much easier to interview them when you're not related to them. You know, like I find teenagers a true joy. I really enjoy talking to teenagers once they start opening up, right? If you, if you, if you convince them that you're clearly just interested in them and you just find their experiences interesting and you're not going to like tell their parents what they said, okay. then, uh, they, I just find them so interesting. Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is Season 1, Episode 2, The Neuroscience of Altruism. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. If you're like me, and let me just say that in this regard, the vast majority of you are like me, you've never woken up some morning and said to yourself, you know what? I have two kidneys. I really only need one kidney. I'm going to give the extra kidney to a total and complete stranger. Now, the reason I know that almost all of you haven't done this before is because we know how many have. It's usually around two to 300 people a year. Before the early 2000s, the number was basically zero. So this is still a relatively rare thing to donate a kidney to a stranger. And yet, the financial cost to a donor is basically zero. And the health risk is also very low. You'd have to stay in the hospital for a couple of days, but you'd be back to normal in just a few weeks. Of course, the recipient of a kidney gets an entirely new lease on life and many years longer to live. For many of us, it would be among the most high-impact things that we could do with the amount of time and effort that's involved. So why do some people donate kidneys while most of us don't? This was the question that Dr. Abigail Marsh and her colleagues have started to answer by looking at the neurological profile of these kidney donors, whom Dr. Marsh calls extreme altruists, and comparing that with the rest of us. In studying this, she and her colleagues have revealed a lot about altruism and how it works in the brain. What is really going on in our heads that makes us want to help people? What makes extreme altruists different than everyone else? And when it comes to altruism, how do we get more of it? Dr. Marsh is my guest for this episode. She's a Harvard-trained neuroscientist and a professor of psychology at Georgetown University in Washington, DC. She's also the author of The Fear Factor, a fantastic book that we'll be covering in this episode. Before we get into the neuroscience of altruism, I thought it would help to have more context. I asked Dr. Marsh about misconceptions that people have about the study of our brains. Well, the single biggest one, and I find this to be a problem when I'm communicating with everybody from undergraduates to, you know, physicians with 30 years of experience, is that every psychological phenomenon is also a neurological phenomenon. Right? There's every psychological phenomena has some corresponding process in the brain that supports it. And if you knocked out that the part of the brain that's involved, that psychological process would disappear or be grossly affected. And I, I don't know why this is a, an issue that is so perennial, but I think it once you start thinking about psychology this way, 
as the, the, my favorite way of describing the relationship between the mind and the brain is the mind is what the brain does. And I heard this from one of my mentors, Dan Gilbert at Harvard, but I, I don't know who actually originally came up with it. And that's really the easiest way to put it. Anything that's happening in your mind is also happening in your brain because that is what the mind is. It's just the output of the brain's activity. And we can't always measure the brain activity that corresponds to especially really complex psychological phenomena, but it's always there. And so when people ask me about things like altruism or psychopathy or empathy, it's always a reflection of a neural process. This explanation by Dr. Marsh immediately gets us into some pretty deep philosophical waters. If every thought or idea or personality quirk can be identified as a physical process in the brain, then are we really choosing? Or are our brains just hardwired to make decisions for us? That phrase, hardwired, is probably one you've heard before, or maybe even you've used it. You've probably also heard of brain plasticity, the idea that our brains can adapt or change. I asked Dr. Marsh to explain these two things and how they relate. I also hear people talk about the brain, even though there's, I think people really understand a lot about the idea of plasticity in the brain, how the brain is not a fixed phenomenon like a car, but it's constantly rewiring and retooling itself in response to environmental input. So every time you learn something or every time you form a new memory, your brain is changed structurally in a little tiny microscopic way that again, we can't measure very well by that experience. So every experience changes your brain. And if an experience causes you to then have new emotions in the future or to respond differently in the future, or if it changes you in any way, it has changed your brain. That is the way that the emotion affected you or that the experience affected you. And so I think that's also really important to remember that the brain, almost nothing in the brain is truly hardwired. The brain is, is able to change itself in response to experience throughout the lifespan. And so when I talk about phenomena like altruism or psychopathy corresponding to differences in the brain, I think unfortunately sometimes that gets misinterpreted as, oh, well, then psychopathy is hardwired in the brain, uh, which it's not. Psychopathy, by the way, is the word for the category of mental illness that's experienced by psychopaths. And it, like altruism, and all kinds of other attributes, is not fixed in the brain, which means no one is fated, just because of how their brain works, to live a psychopathic life, or an altruistic one for that matter. We're headed into a deeper discussion of psychopathy and altruism, so this context is really important. It's the way the brain processes altruism that drew Dr. Marsh to this field and drives her research now. Neuroscience provides an especially powerful lens. My in initial interest in neuroscience was in part because uh, I felt so frustrated in trying to answer the questions I wanted to answer using just laboratory psychological approaches. My core interest is in trying to understand the basis, the origin, the, the, the way it's possible for compassion and caring about other people to emerge, right? What, what is it that allows us to be able to care for other people? Uh, presuming we do, which I believe that we do. And there's no way to answer that question without eventually getting to the neuroscience of it. Because of course, again, the phenomenon of compassion is the result of something happening in the brain, which we don't quite understand what it is yet. And I was trying to understand empathy and altruism and aggression to some extent in my graduate studies through laboratory tasks, you know, where I'd give people the opportunity to donate money to somebody whose sad story they'd heard in a recording. The sad story, of course, was retold by me. And 
you can learn interesting and useful things that way. I would never say we should not have laboratory studies, but it's really hard to know how well they connect to the big, interesting kinds of behavior we see in the real world, you know, life-saving heroic rescues and that sort of thing. And I felt like it's, you needed to try new techniques if you wanted to really think big about the origins of altruism. Why the interest in altruism instead of some other human attribute? Well, that goes back to an experience that Dr. Marsh had as a teenager. I'm going to paraphrase it from her book, but you really just need to read it there, or you can hear her tell it in her TED Talk. Links to both are in the show notes. But this is what happened. Dr. Marsh, or I'm going to call her Abby for this story, was driving home from Seattle to Tacoma after hanging out with a friend. It was a clear summer night around midnight on Interstate 5. Suddenly, a dog ran out and crossed right in front of her. She swerved, of course, and the SUV that she was driving went into a fishtail. The car spun around violently, but came to a halt without hitting anything. She was unharmed, but she couldn't have ended up in a more precarious position. She found herself stopped in the fast lane, facing oncoming traffic. An arched overpass meant that any approaching cars wouldn't be able to see her until it was too late. The engine was dead, every indicator light was flashing, and try as she might, she couldn't get the SUV to start up again. It was only a matter of time before a car or even a semi-truck plowed into her. And that's when he came. A stranger who came out of nowhere and was knocking on her window. This was in a rough part of town too, so his appearance made Abby even more anxious. But he took command of the situation with a smooth confidence. He took her place in the driver's seat, started the car, and navigated her to safety. When he got out of the car, he made sure that she felt confident driving the rest of the way home. Then he drove off in his own car. No name, no other connection to make. She's never seen him again since that night. But I'm curious. Need for any follow-up or anything on my part, which now, having done this kind of work for a decade, I I recognize a lot of those same traits and some of the other people that I've worked with. You know, one of the very first altruistic kidney donors in the country, in fact, the first sort of known instance of somebody giving their kidney to a stranger off a list, was by a woman I I had the, the wonderful good fortune to speak to in writing my book, who was anonymous completely to her recipient for close to 20 years. And I, I wonder if her recipient would, had wanted to know what person had saved her life. And I, I think it's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I have to say, it's it's amazing there are individual differences with this too. So there are some recipients who feel really uncomfortable with the idea that a stranger has done something so big for them, and they they really wrestle with feelings of guilt and unworthiness mm-hmm. and a lot of conflicted feelings. So I've discovered that there is a sizable fraction of people who are saved by strangers who it it gives them a lot of uncomfortable feelings and they don't really want to meet or talk to the person who did this, which is too bad because I bet they would feel better if they did. I'm sure Um, they would. Yeah. Yeah. Because people are so varied and complex, 
Psychological science often requires innovative methods for understanding the human mind. How do you study something as nuanced as altruism? One creative approach is to look at the opposite of what you're studying, and then you can see what's going on. Well, what's the opposite of an altruist? It's a psychopath. Psychopathy is a diagnosable condition, as Dr. Marsh will explain, and it can be observed as soon as early childhood. So, you know, my, my initial attempt to use neuroscience to understand the questions I wanted to understand was to study kids, adolescents mostly, with psychopathic personality traits, which again is this clinical approach. You're um, identifying a construct you're interested in, in this case, compassion and care. And then you find a population of people who seem to be missing that phenomenon, and you try to study what's different about them. And then ideally what you'll come up with is whatever's different about them is the thing that creates that construct you're interested in. And this is exactly how we study memory and face recognition and intelligence and all sorts of things. It's really, in some ways, ideal to study adolescents with psychopathic traits because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, psychopathy, which is really just a personality marked by extreme callousness and lack of caring about other people, uh, a fair degree of narcissism and sort of Machiavellianism, and then also a kind of disinhibited personality. You sort of tend to act before thinking. It's a developmental disorder. So the early signs of it are almost always evident in very young childhood. And then it tends to get dramatically worse in adolescence, which is the most antisocial period of life in general. And then as adolescents get older, they tend to have experiences that pile up that affect their brains, like long periods in detention or substance use. And so the younger the kids you study, the more you feel a little more comfortable that what you're seeing is, is brain differences that cause the psychopathy. So we set out to study kids between the ages of about 10 and 17. And, you know, people were like, oh my gosh, how many kids are there that are psychopathic in that age range? And the answer is about the same as every other age range, which is about 1%. So one in a hundred kids, maybe two have these traits. And it was really challenging to study them there. The, the families of these kids have a lot of burdens. In addition, you know, these kids by definition are not really very caring and compassionate. So they don't care about your research or you at all. They just are usually motivated by the chance to get some money, which we were very happy to pay them in exchange for their time. But, you know, the average research participant is actually a more caring person than the average person we have learned. Generally, people are unusually caring people who sign up to participate in research. And so they try to do their best, right? They try to keep still on the magnet so that they don't have a big blurry brain image at the end of it. And when you're working with kids who are psychopathic, you don't really get any of that. <laughs> you know, they don't stay still. Oh, we lost so many kids that were, you know, perfect participants in every way, except they just couldn't or just wouldn't stay still on the scanner. They often are running into trouble so frequently that they end up not able to come in the day of their study because they ended up in detention the night before, or they ran away from home, or we had more than one kid lock their parent out of the house when it was time to come in for the study. Um, so that they couldn't actually come in that day. It was, it's, a, it's a long list of things. Yeah. Although this episode is mostly about altruism in the brain, I want to pause here and reflect on how hard it can be for psychopathic kids and their families. Because their behavior is by definition antisocial, it's hard for us in society to respond to their cruelty with compassion. But psychopathy is a mental illness, and it's a huge burden on the families that are dealing with it. I asked Dr. Marsh what more we can be doing as a society to help. 
Well, the first thing we need to do is just agree that it's a, it's a mental illness, that, yeah. that psychopathy is a brain disorder, every bit as much as autism or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Nobody chooses to have these traits. We know that, like everything, psychopathy results from a combination of genetic and environmental influences. And the problem is that it's just really hard for people to hear or know about somebody being hurt or somebody breaking a really serious rule and not immediately turn the situation into a primarily moral situation where the person who hurt somebody or broke a rule is bad and deserves punishment. And it's, that's a sort of an incompatible frame of mind with this person is ill and deserves treatment. And unfortunately, both things are true for people who are psychopathic. Yes, they, they, you know, they should experience the consequences of their behavior, but they also need treatment. And we also need to learn how to prevent these symptoms from emerging. And if we can do that, we will save society from an unbelievable amount of suffering and pain. Because, you know, nobody wants to be this way, you know, suffer from a lifetime of broken relationships and time in detention and nobody loves you and you don't love anybody else. Wouldn't it be great to be able to prevent that if we could? There are therapies for other conditions like autism that can help kids learn to read and follow social norms. Would this kind of thing work for psychopathic kids? Those strategies work really well, which is one reason society pours so many resources into making sure that kids who are diagnosed with autism at a young age get them because it makes a huge difference in their outcomes. I think someday we'll be able to do the same for psychopathy. We'll be able to identify markers very early in life come up with effective parent training strategies um, that can be used to really improve these kids' social and emotional processing. And I think we'll be able to lift them just far enough above sort of the, the risk threshold that will be able to change their behavior long-term. And I, 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 that would be wonderful. The problem with working with older people who are psychopathic is mostly their narcissism, right? They, they think they're the best people in the world. So I've, you know, I've worked with teenagers who you know, had been thrown out of multiple schools and their parents were afraid of them. They didn't have any friends and they'd been in, you know, detention many times. And all, a question we would ask all the kids we work with is, you know, how would you just rate yourself overall on a scale from one to 10 with, you know, one being, I don't feel good about myself at all. And 10 being, I feel amazing about myself. And the average healthy kid in the U.S. will usually answer with a seven or an eight. I feel pretty good about myself, but they're room for improvement, right? I think that's actually a very healthy um, yeah. response. And these are kids who are generally doing pretty well in their, in their little lives. Um, whereas the kids with the psychopathic traits would routinely answer when you ask them how they feel about themselves at 10 or an 11. And we had one kid say 20. <laughs> and again, these, are, these kids' lives are objectively a disaster. Yeah. Not that they don't have any good traits, because they all do. They all have lots of good traits. But things are not going well. And the problem is if somebody doesn't feel there's room for improvement in themselves, then they will not be motivated to do any therapy to change themselves. They think they're the ones who are the best already. Right. And so it's fundamentally a problem with motivation. Now, I've sense. heard of interesting cases of people who are psychopathic who, you know, claim to have been not cured necessarily, but but successfully treated to be able to function really well in life. And it mm. came from an insight that they were screwing up their own life through the way they treated other people, that their own life would be much better if uh, they learned to treat other people better. So let's get back to the neuroscience now. What did Dr. Marsh learn in her study of psychopathic teens? To a significant degree, they all exhibited a common trait, a reduced sensitivity to fear. And not just their own fear. What psychopaths share is a general inability to detect fear in others. What's so unique about fear? 
Yeah, fear is one of two kind of, you know, king or queen emotions that really are, they're, they're more fundamental, they're sort of simpler in the neural architecture that supports them because they're so essential to survival. The first is reward seeking, right? Learning about things in the world that will yield rewards. And the second is uh, harm avoidance, uh, which is fear. Learning what kinds of things are threatening and could hurt you and avoiding them in the future. And it's just, you know, I mean, it, it is the Darwinian imperative is that you is that you experience fear in order to prevent being killed. And so I think it is an incredible, it is different fundamentally from emotions like sadness, to some extent, even anger, which is a little more complex than fear, although also pretty simple. Love, certainly emotions like that are much more complicated. And so it's one of the fun things about studying fear. You can really get your hands around it because it's pretty simple. What's even more interesting about fear, I think, is that the way we recognize it in other people has some unique features and is some, in some ways simpler than the way we understand other states and people. On average, we're very good at seeing fear in others because human faces broadcast it so effectively. Try this right now. Raise your eyebrows high and draw them together, making a wrinkle between them. Now open your eyes wide so that we can see the whites of your eyes really clearly. Now stretch your lips tight with or without your mouth open. These are the ingredients of a fearful expression. And even when you do them on purpose, you can kind of feel the emotion of fear. We not only feel it when we make that expression, but we also feel it when we see the expression on others. It's part of our human ability to empathize. What's really interesting about fear is that we understand the neural pathways that support the experience of the emotion really well. And so we've been able to determine that those same neural pathways support understanding the emotion in other people. And so this has, I think, been one of the coolest discoveries of the last decade or so in social neuroscience is that this is one of the key ways that we understand the experiences of other people is by trying to simulate them. Not, you know, not fully, right? So when you see somebody else who's afraid, you won't necessarily feel extreme fear yourself. But under the hood, you know, maybe even below the surface of conscious awareness, your brain is trying to produce a sort of a shadow or a simulation of that experience that will then allow you to interpret it and respond appropriately. So what psychopaths lack is the ability to detect fear in others and respond the way the rest of us do. This missing capacity for empathy comes with a whole host of terrible knock-on effects like callousness, narcissism, and a lack of inhibition. What makes the rest of us not psychopathic is our empathy, this brain simulation that we do when we see the emotions of others. But empathy isn't enough on its own. In the incredible book called Altruism, Buddhist monk and neuroscientist Mathieu Ricard points out that empathy on its own can lead to fatigue and burnout. That is, if it isn't also accompanied by compassionate action. This is where altruism comes in. But how do you study altruism in the brain? Can you scientifically identify people who are especially generous, just like you can identify psychopaths? And now for a word from our sponsor. Do you teach ethics to others? Whether it's at a university, school, company, or agency? If so, you know how hard it can be to find engaging and useful materials for your class. At Merit Leadership, we have decades of award-winning experience teaching ethics in top programs. Our ethics classroom offers complete lesson plans, videos, exercises, and assessments, all in an online resource that's easy to use. 
You can pick just what you need or even teach an entire course. Everything we do focuses on developing ethical skills that help people succeed where good intentions alone fall short. To learn more about the Business Ethics Field Guide and our Classroom in a Box, check the show notes for a link or visit MeritLeadership.com. Dr. Marsh's fantastic idea was to study people who donate kidneys to strangers, a group she calls extreme altruists. As I mentioned earlier, there are a few hundred of these donations to strangers performed every year. So what did she find? Well, if psychopaths are mostly or completely unable to detect fear in others, altruists are far better at it than the average person. This heightened ability to sense fear in other people is what helps them see a need to act. But if they're better at detecting fear, why aren't they overwhelmed by it? After all, getting surgery to give up a kidney is intimidating. How do altruists overcome the fear that they are so good at sensing? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite topics, right? So, and this is one of the the points I really think is incredibly important to remember when you're thinking about altruism is the incredibly important distinction between being fearless and being brave. Mm. Uh, and it's gotten to the point where I'm a little ridiculous and how annoyed I get when people refer to altruists and heroes as fearless. Yeah. Because they're really not, if you ask them about their experiences helping other people. The, the people I work with who donate kidneys to strangers are not people who are unafraid of pain or unafraid of surgery or unafraid of dying. You know, they don't tend to be fearless people on their walks of life. What they are is brave. And I, they wouldn't call themselves that almost ever because they don't experience that that way. Where does this courage come from in extreme altruists? They sense the fear, but what makes them act bravely in the face of it to help someone else? Well, it's because of the human capacity for something called allomothering. And this, I think, gets to a really important point about how the brain works, which is related to allomothering, which just means taking care of anyone who's not your own offspring. Allo meaning other. Right. So what's so interesting about the way the brain is built in mammals is that what's unique about mammals is that, of course, we have these very helpless offspring who need a huge amount of care and protection and resource provision from their parents in order to survive. And so our brains had to get built, especially females for most species, but in humans, very clearly both males and females, our brains had to get built to to care about the welfare of other individuals. And the region of the brain called the amygdala, in particular, the influence of a hormone called oxytocin within the amygdala seems to be critical to especially caring about when others are in danger, especially our own offspring. And that particular region of the brain seems to be essential for responding when somebody else is in danger, for overcoming, for suppressing the desire to protect yourself and replacing it with the desire to protect someone other than you. And so if you don't have a well-functioning amygdala, like people who are psychopathic, you are nearly, you are neither fearful, right? So people who are psychopathic are characterized by being relatively fearless, nor are you interested in helping others who are in danger, who are afraid. And so the capacity for fear is actually essential to being brave when it comes to helping others who are in danger. And it seems to be the parts of the brain that give us the ability to be good parents that allow that transition to be made. So what's happening with altruism is we have this ability to detect fear in others and feel it ourselves, but then have that fear overcome by the presence of oxytocin, and that's what makes us show care. Well, this process doesn't work the same in everyone. What factors change our capacity for altruism? And they do vary a lot. 
people seem to become more altruistic as they get older. So mm-hmm. if you look at behaviors like altruistic kidney donation, you see a lot more of it in people who are middle aged and, and older than you do in people who are younger. Although not zero. I've worked with some altruistic kidney donors in their late teens, but just as a trend you definitely see lots of personality variation. So people who are altruistic kidney donors also tend to be the sort of people who help others in need in various other ways, including animals, including young children. The science of this brings up some really deep philosophical questions. If altruism is desirable, which I think we believe it is, it varies across personalities and people. Can we even do anything to get more of it? Can we choose more of it? Dr. Marsh firmly believes that we can, but we need to better understand what helps us make that happen. One of those things is seeing how altruism can lead to a virtuous cycle. It turns out that on average, the better off a society is, the more altruistic it can be. So in geographic regions where people say they're flourishing, you tend to see more, for example, altruistic kidney donation, blood donation, charitable donation, volunteering, all these things tend to go together. And that's kind of cool because it suggests that when people are in the position to, to help, that's what they naturally do. I like that. And it's better than the Faustian bargain we would have to make if it turned out that flourishing made people less likely to help others because then you'd have to choose between the two, but it doesn't seem like you do. I had to jump in here. Because research by Michael Krauss, Dr. Keltner, and others has shown that increased wealth can actually reduce empathy and altruism. Basically, the wealthier we are, the less we encounter and relate to the suffering of others. Wealth also makes people feel entitled to act in more selfish ways. Studies have even shown that when you put average people in nicer cars, they're less likely to stop for pedestrians than if you put them in less expensive cars. So how does this square with Dr. Marsh's research that shows that increased prosperity leads to increased altruism? Well, the better way to think about this is that altruism is not tied to excess wealth, but to flourishing. Flourishing is deeper and more meaningful than just money. If you look at large representative samples of the population, you tend to find this very close tracking between people's well-being. They're you know, feeling like they're flourishing, feeling like they have purpose in life, feeling their needs are met, and altruism towards strangers. And we've recently seen this in a study we did looking across countries as well. And this is even when you covary out every other you know, demographic and objective variable that you can think of. Right. And it is a strange, it, right? Because it suggests that like, you know, the uber wealthy will be the most altruistic. And that's, that's not actually what the data means. <laughs> Because we don't study the uber wealthy. We study, you know, the top 10% or something like that versus the middle 10%. And probably the deal is that altruism does require you to have a view of the world that's fundamentally optimistic, that people are generally good and worthy of helping and would help you if you needed help yourself. And most people I've worked with who are altruistic kidney donors do have that view of people. Right, because otherwise, if you encounter some you know random stranger you know nothing about, the one thing you have to think if you're going to help them is this person deserves to be helped. Right, which does require a sort of fundamental optimism about people, and something that like demographers and social scientists have known for many decades is that when people have experienced like like really a lot of 
difficulties in their life circumstances, you tend to see an increase in cynicism and misanthropy, which is not at all surprising. You know, it makes perfect sense. Um, but unfortunately, it can, you know, have some un- unfortunate downstream effects. And so I think what the reality is that there's sort of a critical combination of feeling like you are, you know, you're in a position to help other people because of your own good fortune and having had enough positive experiences in your life that you still feel like people are generally good and worthy of helping. Not that I'm passing judgment on whether or not that's true (laughs) objectively. It's just, you know, it's, it's an assumption that underlies altruism. It's not just flourishing in your life that prompts you towards generosity. It's also having been through hard times. Enduring difficult experiences has the ability to deepen our empathy and our instinct for compassion, as long as our suffering didn't turn us into cynics. But also, I do think the people within that sort of large group who are the most altruistic are people who have experienced extreme suffering, who really understand what it means to suffer, to be afraid, to feel pain. And so I think that's the critical combination. What we generally see is that people who are generally report that they're flourishing in their life, but have also had significant experiences of pain and suffering, I think do tend to be the most empathic because they have, they feel like they have the resources to give. They do have some fundamental optimism, but they also understand what it means to really suffer and they, so they can empathize and and are motivated to help. And they also feel a sense of self-efficacy. So this is really interesting work done by David Desteno showing that people who've experienced significant um, trauma or natural disasters themselves benefit from the self-efficacy that that experience gives you of feeling like you know what to do in that situation. Up to this point, we've already learned so much from Dr. Marsh about altruism. But there's another mechanism that we need to talk about. It's a very deeply human part of the way altruism works. It has to do with the way we think of ourselves. In Western cultures especially, there's this dominant idea of individualism, that each of us is starkly distinct from each other. Self, as we might define it, is me and me alone. But in practice, this isn't really how we think about ourselves. We consistently wrap others into our definition of self through the relationships that we have with one another. For example, I'm a husband because of my spouse. I'm a father because of my children. I'm a teacher because of my students. They all make up part of who I am. Surely this has some effect on my expressions of altruism or compassion. Oh man, this is one of this is this is my current obsession, this particular topic. How is it that we decide that others are part of our sort of self-concept that we yeah. that we perceive overlap between ourselves and others? And this is clearly something we're built to do is to think of ourselves as is fundamentally connected to others around us. You know, we are the the boundary of the self has never ended at the surface of our skin. I mean, we're, yeah, we're you know full of microbes. We were you know embedded in communities without which we couldn't survive. We're fundamentally embedded in the world that we live in, and so our, and our brain knows this. Our brain does not think that the boundary of our self ends at the at the boundary of our skin. And how does that happen? A lot we don't know. There is some interesting evidence that actually the amygdala and oxytocin's effects within the amygdala are essential for making that self-other distinction, which makes sense because, of course, this is a phenomenon that's intrinsic to 
for example, becoming a parent is this, you know, brand new being that has never existed before plops into the world. And you have to immediately decide that that other organism is so very much a part of yourself that you will do anything to promote its welfare. And you obviously can distinguish between it and yourself, right? You don't treat it as though it was actually you, but it has to become a very much a part of your own identity. And so clearly this is something we're, we're, very good at it and, and, and can do in some cases almost instantly. Can we somehow enhance our ability to feel more connected to others, to make it feel like they are part of us? There are lots of ways that we can do it, uh, sort of in the here and now, other than having a baby. What's one sort of tried and true method and probably the most successful is simple positive social contact. It's amazing how familiarity breeds, tends not to breed contempt, actually tends to breed mostly positive feelings. The better you get to know somebody in general, unless they're just a real jerk, which there are some of those, but if they're not, tend to like them better. And this is one of those things that I think in the current moment in time is so incredibly important as we're trying to learn how very diverse groups of people can get along better. Positive social contact, right? We have to just, we have to be together and spending time doing things together that are mostly positive. And that will inevitably breed better understanding and more liking, which is so important. And we also know from social psychology that one of the best kinds of things you can do with others to form a coherent identity is work on collaborative projects together, work towards a common goal. When you do that with people, I think it's, I think there's something really interesting in how the brain determines what itself is versus what someone else does. And it has a lot to do with prediction, right? If you can predict an outcome in the world, you tend to incorporate that thing you predicted into your sense of self. And so when we're working with other people as a team, especially people who are very familiar to ourselves, we can often predict what they're going to do or say before they do or say it. And I think that's really intrinsic to feeling like the other person is almost like a part of your own self, you know, a part of your own identity, is that you know what they're going to do as almost as well as you know what you yourself are going to do. This is why people, most people give kidneys. Most people, the vast majority of people who give kidneys, give them to very close relatives, to their parent or child or spouse or sibling. And those people are very much embedded in the concept of ourselves. And so the, the, the value of a kidney, whether it's in your own body or whether it's in the body of somebody that you love so much that they, they do feel like a part of yourself. I mean, why do we say when those people die that if we've missed, we're missing a part of ourselves? It's because they're so embedded in the concept of self. And so if that same kidney has a negligible impact on our own welfare, but it would save their life, it just is an obvious choice to most right. people. It's just like, oh my God, like if this person were gone, it would be like, you know, a little a death to a part of myself. So obviously the kidney is better over there than it is over here. And then of course, what's so interesting about the really extraordinary altruists is that they seem to feel that way, even about strangers. They really, they're, they're the concept for them this, their sense of self is even broader than the average person, which is pretty cool. So do you think humanity is headed that direction where we have more extreme altruists or more extreme altruism, so to speak, more I altruism do. for strangers? I absolutely do. We are, I mean, it's so clear that, that people feel this way much more now than they did decades ago. That it, you know, the, the reason people get so bummed out when they're watching the news is because they really care about the fate of strangers and, you know, who they'll never meet in, in places they've never been, you know, millions of miles away. 
that's really amazing that we've gotten to the point where, you know, for you or me, like the plight of people who, you know, are in Beirut, for example, this week, right. it like really moves us. We don't know them. We may not speak their language. We, you know, why do we care about them? And, you know, arguably 100, 200 years ago, people would not have cared at all. About them. That yeah. would have been like, oh, well, I, that's too bad. You know, I wouldn't have wished it upon them, but I don't feel for them. And now we do. And I think it's because of the way that we live. We encounter a much wider diversity of people. We're living in a world that's more peaceful than it used to be. And so we don't view life as, a, as a, just a series of, you know, winner-take-all contests between warring sociopolitical groups. We, you know, countries rely on each other. People within those countries rely on each other for our daily survival in large diverse groups that are much bigger than the sort of relatively small collectives that most people lived in for most of human history. And I think it's making us feel like the fate of strangers is more embedded in our own fate. There are so many lessons to learn from all of this, but here at the end of the episode, I want to dwell on this one idea. You are not you alone. There's so much more to you than that. The secret is to find more of yourself and other people. We grow in a very real and meaningful way in the connections that we form with others. As they become part of us, we make much more of ourselves, but it's up to us to make those connections. And as you can see, our brains are prepared for these connections. The opportunities we have to give are abundant, and they don't even require you to give up a kidney, though you could do that too. The point is that when you offer part of yourself to someone else, in a very real way, you're getting more of yourself in return. You become a person that matters to another human being, just as they matter to you. Your connection expands who you are in a way that you couldn't do on your own. Many, many thanks to Dr. Abigail Marsh for taking the time to talk with me. It was a delightful conversation. Do make sure that you watch her TED Talk and definitely check out her book, The Fear Factor. We've linked to both of these in the show notes. If you want to keep up with How to Help, consider subscribing to our newsletter. You can find it at how-to-help.com. It's also linked in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, it helps us a lot if you give a positive review in your podcast directory of choice. That helps other people discover it too. Please be sure to subscribe so that way you get future episodes as they come out. Next time, we'll be talking with David Williams. He's the former CEO of the National Make-A-Wish Foundation, former COO of Habitat for Humanity, former executive director of the Houston Area Food Bank, and currently he's the CEO of Genesis Works. We're going to be talking with him about what he's done his entire career, giving people hope. Thanks to Merit Leadership, who sponsors this podcast, and to our production team, which included Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. Our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club. If you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in our show notes. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller, and this has been How to Help.